guys, I have to say, I am so glad that there is finally a movie that's brave enough to talk about the Giants. I know. It's been a huge government conspiracy for years. They're trying to cover up the truth of these this giant scourge that everybody around the world has to deal with. I know. It's ridiculous how everybody you meet acts like there aren't giants everywhere constantly destroying the world. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, like... Oh, haven't you seen the 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 devastation rot like every full moon? No, no, no. That's the werewolves. Uh oh. Okay. And that's when you'll usually see like you know animal attacks. And giants are more like mass destruction. Yeah, like storms, storms. You know, quote unquote. Right, or like or like bite marks on the neck that drain all the blood from a person. No, 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 no. That's Dracula's. Oh, right, right. Oh. Yeah, giants are more about mayhem. They're pure hate. Mm-hmm, yeah. We're talking about giants here, you know, the big things. Yeah, I mean, they're at least 20 feet tall. Okay. All right. And, they, and, they, and they're covered in hair. And there's pictures of them moving blurrily through the woods. No, 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 no. That's the Sasquatch. Bigfoot. And the most they can ever get to is nine or ten feet tall. Okay. And that's not giant. That's No. And titans are even bigger than normal giants. They can get up to 50 feet tall. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, like, like the one that comes out of the sea and uses laser breath. In, like, Japan. Eh, close enough. <laughs> Hello, fantasy fans, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Mokel, here with my gigantic co-hosts. Gigantic personalities. Yeah, that that's right. That's what I meant. I'm Chelsea Hollowell, a giant hunter, fox in disguise. So that's your uh your spirit guide to the fox. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> that makes sense. Very nice. Very nice. And I'm uh Jack Olander. A man who donated his skeleton to science, and my skeleton wound up in a school science room, which was then turned into an effigy used to pay back a bully. Nice. <laughs> you should be proud. Justice will be carried out. Yes. This is justice. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, this week we're going to be talking about I Kill Giants. Now, I'm not saying that I personally kill giants, but I'm also not saying that I don't kill giants. That's just the name of the movie that we watched. Yeah, I, I personally don't kill them. I hunt them. It's a different thing. So it's like more of a catch and release thing? More like observe and track. Okay, okay, that makes sense. Somebody yeah. needs intel, you know. Yeah, that's smart. You gotta know your enemy, I guess. Yeah. A lot of people call me a giant because I'm tall, and they point and they scream. 
<laughs> yeah, that doesn't surprise me necessarily. It makes sense because of all your craggy edges and bark covering your skin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, guys, before we get too far into the movie, why don't we cover some of the technical stats on it? This movie was directed by Anders Walter. It's based on the comic by Joe Kelly and Ken Nomura. And uh, Kelly wrote the screenplay for the movie. And it stars Madison Wolf, Imogene Poots, Sidney Wade, and Zoe Saldana. But now that we have that out of the way, I think Chelsea has a summary ready to go for the film. That's right. Here's your summary for I Kill Giants. You kill giants? <laughs> so we follow the main character, Barbara, on her quest to hunt and kill giants in order to protect her hometown, which is on the coast of the U.S. somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> the East Coast, we assume. Uh, there are several states mentioned in the movie, so it's kind of difficult to know exactly where she is. Fun fact, the movie was filmed in Ireland, so... Yeah. You know, good old American state Ireland. <laughs> so Barbara's a teenager, either late middle schooler or early high schooler, hard to tell. I think it's the, the, she goes to the middle school, so... Okay, there you have it. She's kind of... <laughs> I mean, of if you believe the sign outside of the school... <laughs> She's kind of a mixture between a scientist and a witch. Mm-hmm, yeah. Or just a witch, depending on your definition of that. Science witch. Yeah. <laughs> Science witch, yes. She's dealing with grief and loss in the family. Her older sister, Karen, watches out for her and their brother, Dave. Karen seems like she is... In her early 20s, she has a job that she's barely holding on to, and she's trying to keep the family together and care for her two younger siblings. Kind of a classic at-the-end-of-your-rope older sibling. Yes. And it seems like most of the movie that perhaps their parents have died somehow, but you don't get the full lowdown until later on in the movie. Oh, they're just, yeah, absent up to a point. And... Barbara is the only one that can see these giants, and she's been experimenting with how to bait them. It's because her eyes are open, man. She just knows what's going on. Nobody else wants to believe the reality and the truth, man. So she puts warding runes around her school, home, and in the forest and around people's homes, wherever she wants to protect people. Now, we should point out Barbara's last name is Thorson. As in the god Thor, and she also has an enchanted hammer, like the god Thor. <laughs> That's right. And she calls her enchanted hammer Kovaleski after a famous Phillies baseball Pitcher. star. <laughs> star man. <laughs> baseball person, I believe they're called. A baseballer. A hundred years in the past. Harry Kovaleski, who we all know very well. It turns out, like we find out later, that her mother really was interested in this historical figure and got her, uh, Barbara interested in him as well because they're close. 
And, and because he was a legendary giant killer. That's right. Because he defeated the New York Giants, apparently. Exactly. And he was also a coal miner, which is kind of cool. So Barbara sees her main goal in life to protect her town and her family and friends from these giants. She doesn't care much about school or trying to be nice to people because she thinks that she's on a sacred holy mission. A mission from God. <laughs> Wrong movie, sorry. So along the way, she befriends a new girl in town named Sophia who comes from England. and I believe she's from London. <laughs> That's why she's so fashionable. They fight together against a bully, Taylor, and her cronies. There is a rocky point in the relationship that we'll get into later. And also, Mrs. Mole is a psychiatrist who works at the school who's trying to help Barbara deal, deal with her grief and loss. And it turns out, later on in the movie, we find out that her mother isn't dead she's been sick this whole time and barbara hasn't what a twist been able to come to terms with uh, that or deal with the anxiety and fear that come along with your mother being ill i mean it's no surprise like add the stress of your mother being ill to your career hunting giants like you're gonna have to Find, you, like, you can't balance those things very well when you're that age. So she chooses to prioritize hunting giants rather than dealing with the problems inside of her family. In the end, Barbara faces a titan and defeats him, but she's also taken down in the process. But at the same time, the titan is talking back to her and trying to tell her what the real meaning of life is, and Barbara decides to fight back and fight for her life. Turns out the Titan's not such a bad dude after all. Besides the whole trying to drown Barbara thing. But he also instills life lessons. So. She's able to come to terms with her mother's illness at that point, And they're able to re reconcile before her mother dies in the end. The giant tells her that she must find joy in the living. Because running away from death your entire life means you will miss out on all of the experiences of your existence. Yes. Wise words from a giant. One who's trying to fuck you up, too. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, all great villains, like, have these motivations that we can understand. Yes. You must find joy, Barbara, in the very brief amount of time I give you left. <laughs> but then she fucks him up. Mm-hmm. Yep. Swings that Kovaleski right to the dome. And I, I guess we can point out that at the very end of the movie, we have a sad uh, moment where... Barbara has come to terms with her mother's illness. She goes to see her, it seems like for the first time since her mother became ill. And then we get a cut to her mother's funeral where she's able to pass on her giant hunting tools, like give them up because she has, she has done her duty of protecting the town. All right, well, then why don't we get into it? We should head into the Delve. Welcome to The Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and messages for I Kill Giants. So guys, I wanted to ask you a question. 
Why do you think it is that all the townspeople deny what is right in front of them with these giants? Is it fear or just plain cowardice? Discuss. <laughs> I mean, that kicks off what I'm going to say pretty well, actually. I was going to talk about how one of the clear messages of the film is that, uh, and I hate to say this, I don't think there are any giants. Uh, what? I uh, I hate to say it. What are you talking about? There's I there's giants throughout the entire movie. We we see them constantly. You must have been very sad about Barbara's situation because it seemed that the giants were a manifestation of her grief for her situation and a coping mechanism even something she was able to best insurmountable well, odds. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. sometimes when we're experiencing grief, we have to focus on our work to try to get through the suffering. Well, I guess she did set that train on fire. Yeah. And how about the giant that's chasing her in the beginning that, like, she goes away in the beginning from the first giant trap, and we see the giant show up and, and test the bait. Yeah. Explain that. We also did see Sophia accidentally stepping in a large puddle, and when you pull back, it looks like a giant footprint. Yeah. There's that. Also, how about that mysterious storm that the Doppler radars couldn't even pick up? That just appeared out of nowhere? Mm. It's true. It's true. It could be magic. It could be. I think it's kind of open-ended. Like, it could be either or or both things. <laughs> happening at the same time like different layers of reality different ways to explain what's going on with her yeah from my perspective the the jedi are evil well does that even need to be said it's common <laughs> knowledge at this point right yeah but um well that's why there was only one last jedi right that's right yeah but um from my perspective, uh, there probably weren't giants, but from my perspective as well, there were definitely giants, if that makes sense. <laughs> if that oh, makes totally. any sense. Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. There, are, there probably aren't giants, but like, they're, they're def, they're objectively are giants. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that if we want to talk about the giants as a coping mechanism, they kind of seem to symbolize like you said jack grief but also fear of death well, yeah because giants are scary and it puts these feelings into a form that barbara can cope with and fight against and gives her something active to do definitely like like she says and you referenced jamie they're just pure hatred that's, that's right barbara's own words right yes Although we find out later that the final Titan is not pure hatred, but just like 98% hatred. I mean, yeah. I, I think that final Titan interaction is really interesting when you're looking at this specific theme. Because like we've been saying, he was actually the Titan at the end. Yes. Illuminated the messages that Barbara needed to hear once she was kind of ready to accept them or grapple finally with the concepts that the Titan was presenting. Yeah. Because yeah. people throughout the film 
had been trying to mention to Barbara, like, your parents, right? Yeah, your and mother. it just yeah. kept, yeah, your mother. And they just kept censoring the word most of the film. Like, you just wouldn't hear it. You'd see their mouth move for that part, but no dialogue would come out. And it's almost like you're getting the experience of what Barbara is experiencing because she, you can kind of hear them muffled, but yeah. you can't understand what they're saying. And it's like she's intentionally tuning them out. Yeah, definitely. Which is why when the Titan shows up, this is kind of the way that she's been dealing with everything. Like we keep saying, it's a coping mechanism, right? Which means when the Titan starts talking about it, that means she was ready. She couldn't handle not facing it anymore at this point. This was the final fight, the biggest opponent. The It has a hurricane, right? Right. As its manifestation, right? It has this huge st hulking stone body and a hurricane as its presence, right? Yeah. And Barbara's ready to face the most, you know, the most serious opponent yet, just her situation in life, right? Or her own outlook on the situation. And it's interesting seeing the answers to her problems being delivered from a creature she perceives as pure hatred. I think that we can understand how it transitions in symbolism from a symbol of grief and fear to a symbol of hope and courage. If we examine the harbingers and ah, how Barbara yeah. reacts to them and they come in kind of around the middle of the movie. She talks about them earlier to Sophia. When she's explaining the different types of giants. And she references that she got these ideas from Norse and Greek mythology. And from D&D, which... That's right. I mean, we all, we know from onward that everything in role-playing games is based on historical fact. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Or real-world myth and religion, which is cool. Exactly. So... She talks about the Harbingers as being these kind of disgusting black creatures that float around and creep around the giants as basically Harbingers of this death and destruction that the giants bring. They're, right? they're uh, yeah, they're foretellers of doom. So she is kind of almost giving us everything that these things symbolize. There's more to suss out of, as we've been talking about, but there Yeah, those harbingers are pretty sus. <laughs> the dialogue in this movie makes uh, the symbolism behind things kind of obvious, but you can definitely delve deeper into it even so. So the harbingers, whenever they appear to her, they're always speaking ill words in her ear and whispering ill words to her. And they kind of, to me, seem to symbolize despair and hopelessness. And they're trying to infect her with that feeling, with the things that they say to her. Yeah, I mean, they're classic worm tongues. Yeah, they're kind of like that. Speaking and poison into the ears of, you know, those who will listen. Before, um, when she's first seeing them, you know, you, what do you guys remember? Like, she runs away from them. Well, yeah, they're they're terrifying. They look like Nito, the Lord of the Dead from Dark Souls. Yeah, it's pretty mm. cool. Scary fucking Dementor shit. Yeah, like shrouded, almost Dementors. Yeah, with like weird branching hands and huge physiques. They're what we're saying is they're fucking rad. Yeah, and they, they have are. shadows. They have shadows coming off of them. 
later on, they're taunting her and saying that she doesn't have what it takes to fight giants anymore. And then she's talking back to them. Well, and this, we know that she has a tremendous amount of self-doubt because she's lost the ability to manifest Kovaleski in its glorious form. Which is her righteous hammer. Yeah. I mean, all great heroes have their righteous hammer. So it's through dealing with her own feelings of despair and hopelessness and then saying that she trusts that Kovaleski will come back to her when she needs it and having that faith in herself and her abilities. And after successfully killing one giant with an epic explosion, that it seems like she's ready to face that titan. So it's the Harbingers kind of are her way to actively struggle with these concepts like you were talking about, Jack. Yeah, definitely. We also have to examine her relationship with Sophia, who... yes is an important key to Barbara having somebody to connect to. And while their relationship is a bit rocky, Sophia also kind of gives her, gives Barbara a social outlet to feel connected to somebody else. She feels very protective of Sophia. Sophia's a little bit younger, doesn't know about, you know, the dangers of giants and everything. So Barbara is able to kind of take on this mentorship role for somebody, which she does not have as the youngest member of her own family. Her brother is aloof. Her sister is, I mean, understandably kind of disconnected. She promises to play D&D with Barbara, but Barbara kind of says like, well, when is that ever going to happen? You know, like you don't have time for me. And she's resentful, as I think a child would be, but we as the audience can look at Karen's situation and feel a tremendous amount of empathy for, she's not even a working mother, she's a working sister who has to support the entire family while their mother is very, very ill, yeah, terminally ill. And, you know, this sister is in her 20s taking on the responsibility, maybe 20s, like that's the the probably the the upper end of how old she is compared yeah. to the other kids. She um, seemed young. Yeah. At most, she'd be in her early twenties. Yeah, at um, least eighteen. Their brother Dave is lashes out really severely at Barbara. You know, early on in the movie, but later on, there's a moment where we see him. He's playing video games to cope with all of this, and yeah. like there's a moment where there's this big blow up, and he. I, I really felt for Dave in this moment I where he too. like just has this completely defeated reaction to to Barbara and Karen getting into this fight. Like he just can't even deal with it anymore. He's, you know, probably a 16, 17 year old. And when Karen says like, you know, you're always leaving the house to Barbara. And then she talks about Dave. She's like, and Dave is always in his video games. Neither of you ever helps me out. Dave, instead of just acting like a pissed off teenager, like Jamie's saying, he puts down his controller, looks distressed at them, and then puts his head in his hands. Like, he feels there's so many feelings going on in yeah. this moment. Oh, like, no. shame and guilt and sadness at knowing what we know later on about the mother. It yeah. seems like they had been a pretty close family. There are moments where we get this glimpse these glimpses of that yeah but there's a lot of dysfunction around these raw feelings of 
grief and fear and and they're all extremely young i mean there's no good time to deal with the loss of a parent yeah but they're all very young very ill-equipped to deal with this the father doesn't seem to be in the picture there's no mention of a father yeah it's a real reverse disney situation I thought it was exactly like a Disney movie because the mother dies. <laughs> yeah, but we we find out that the mother is there during the film. Oh, she didn't die true. in the in the yeah. pr- in the prologue. <laughs> She's a lot like an Anakin Skywalker. No father, but the mom is passing. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So you're saying that uh, Barbara has a high midichlorian count. I'm saying all those giants she killed were younglings. <laughs> but um, so Barbara. Is dealing with giants. And she's yeah. dealing with her Tough family stuff. fighting, right? And she sees herself as a loner. And she tells that to Sophia, who meets her on the beach, right? Yes. Sophia just sees her on the beach hanging out in this boat she's turned into her sanctuary, right? It's mm-hmm. this really cool overturned boat, yeah. Yeah. And Sophia just kind of latches on to Barbara because Barbara seems like a really interesting person and someone who is going through a lot, right? She's kind of openly different. And she looks like a creative artist type and she is an artist. And she acknowledges like she is not an outsider who is unaware of her outsider status. I really related to her because of this. She is aware of the fact that she is considered weird and that people are not interested in getting to know her because she is interested in i would say like nerdy things like D. like she kind of wears this outsider status proudly yes which i appreciated right. too mm-hmm. yeah and she even says to sophie at us at a few points like you're gonna find out why people don't get close to me and stuff like that and, like, I'm an outsider, it's better that way, sort of thing. And you also yeah. hear Barbara telling her therapist at times stuff like, I'm only rude to people who are idiots, but uh, a lot of people are idiots. <laughs> right? yeah. like that. She puts herself on the fringe of society. Barbara's sassy. It's true. <laughs> but Sophie really latches on to her and crosses personal boundaries to help out her friend a lot of the time. Yeah. But that's actually one of the things that Barbara, I think, appreciates the most about her is that she's willing to go these kind of extra miles to stay Barbara's friend, right? Yeah. And Barbara kind of repays that friendship by giving her protective runes on her property there's a scene where she convinces sophie to give her some of sophie's blood as part of sort of a wording ritual to keep the the what the harbingers just the giants away i think yeah the giants it's supposed to be kind of like a protection spell and like a magical barrier to yeah ward them or like kind of keep them away in general right and so we see sophie being this great accommodating friend she's going way out of her comfort zone yeah to try and help someone that she is drawn to and is friends with as far as situations even like where Barbara finds a dead deer in the woods and is poking around in its intestines and is like, yeah, "Yeah, 
this was a giant. And Sophie's like, hey, Barbara, this is really not my bag. Yeah. (laughs) She was like, this is really weird. I want to go home now, please. Sophia is not comfortable with this. No, she runs away. And Barbara follows. Yeah, it probably would have only taken a little bit of coaxing to convince Sophia to stick with it. Like, look, I'm I'm not doing this just to creep you out. I'm trying to follow clues. She's like, doing science. But Barbara was so into what she was doing, it was almost like she forgot Sophia was there. Yeah, now mm-hmm. this is, I think, the first time we see the Harbinger's talking to Barbara yes. is when Sophia runs away and yes. they're they're taunting her saying like everybody's gonna run away from you you're not worthy you're yeah. not you know you're you're gonna be scared when the giants show up you're not gonna be able to face them just like your friend can't face them mm-hmm. and that's where this whole theme I'm actually building toward gets wrapped up the harbingers play a similar role to Taylor, her school bully. Oh, yeah. I see that. Mm -hmm. Through kind of context clues, I don't, and a few lines. They don't outwardly say it, but I got the impression, and I think they mentioned, that Taylor and Barbara used to be closer friends until, until the situation with the mom started happening and Barbara started kind of disassociating with reality and started pursuing these kind of more fantastical beliefs. I I missed that. That's interesting. Right. So there were a few lines that kind of indicated that. Okay. Where Taylor was talking to Sophia, trying to be like, you know, she's crazy, right? And I, I think she referenced a few lines like, she pushed me away or something or like she started doing this weird stuff so I stopped hanging out with her it was not something so overt but there were several instances that kind of implied they used to have this relationship and that's why Taylor cares so much about this yeah she has like this big personal vendetta against Barbara not just that she's like a bully and she is but you hear her mention a few times like oh I'm doing this for Barbara's benefit, right? She's never going to learn unless you, like, shatter this illusion, right? And that's why she keeps trying to, like, call Barbara crazy and destroy all this stuff that Barbara has set up to kind of fit this fantastical lifestyle she's building for herself. It's because Taylor is resentful of the way that Barbara's changed. Okay, this makes it all make so much more sense to me. Thank you for bringing this up because... I was wondering why Taylor was so fixated on torturing Barbara besides, like, we never got a res. I felt like I never got a resolution there. Like, is Taylor dealing with her own shit at home and she's picking on somebody that she perceives as an easy target? I mean, it could be that, too. Yeah, it could be. We never find out more about Taylor in that way, but with what Jack is saying, that kind of illuminates some of it, at least. Yeah. Her friend is, like, in her mind, her friend has just lost it, right? Become unfriendly, right? Not friend-worthy. And she's sort of trying to, in a spiteful way, undo that, right? Right. Well, she's young. She doesn't know either how to deal with it in a constructive way. It's true. 
So she's gotten this gaggle of other friends to kind of harass Barbara and try and like force her into a very unhealthy way to confront her situation and shatter her coping mechanism. At the same time, she sees Barbara's made this new friend, Sophia, who is sort of going along with the coping mechanism. And a lot of the interesting interactions we see throughout the film are Taylor, the school bully, trying to convince Sophia, Barbara's friend, that she's nuts and like not to coddle her. And yeah. she's like, don't go along with what she thinks. She's nuts. This isn't helping her, right? That's a lot of the stuff she says. In the end, we find out Taylor was wrong. But, you know, she Taylor doesn't know that. Well, even when Taylor finds out about Barbara's mother, that actually just makes her double down on the cruelty. But it could be also after the fact that Barbara creates the skeleton effigy in Taylor's locker that must be some you know i mean i guess that's a trigger for for taylor it seemed like it but what i was getting at was that what we see by the end of the movie is that barbara actually had to work through this storyline to come to terms with what was happening in her life so that's how taylor was wrong there you don't need to shatter the illusion you need to help barbara work through this story that she's living out yeah well, that's yeah. good, because I think this is the perfect time to transition to talking a bit about Miss Mole and her exactly. role. Exactly. I was just thinking about her. <laughs> in the story. This is, of course, Zoe Saldana, glorious star of stage or of screen. I don't know if she's a we stage actor. We get to actor, see but her we, in we always... her natural human form. <laughs> yes, it is, it is comforting to see great actors not have to be covered up completely in, in body paint. Yeah. Um, CGI. Yeah, or CGI. I mean, I guess that's a form of body paint. Um, yes. No, I, I love Zoe Saldana, and she's always excellent in whatever I see her in. And this is a movie that I think really gets to show her acting chops in terms of showing off her emotional range, her ability to convey complex emotions like really well throughout these moments she shares with Barbara. She's so Miss Mole is the school psychiatrist. She's new in town and she's kind of trying to build this rapport with Barbara because she knows something's not right with Barbara's home life or something. She's really concerned, but like she makes these attempts at connecting with Barbara, but everything goes wrong, you know, the first few times. She, like, calls her into her office, but it's a public thing, so it's humiliating to Barbara. She tries to, like, read the name Kovaleski on Barbara's bag, but she misspeaks it, she mispronounces it, and Barbara's like, oh, well, you've, like, lost any credibility. Yeah, she intentionally pushes Mrs. Mole away uh, and Sophia, whenever they get too close to touching on anything that gets close to talking about her mother. And baseball is included in that because that's something she and her mother shared together, was this love of baseball history. We also have this really sad scene later on in the movie after Barbara and Miss Mole have, have developed a bit of a relationship and a rapport Miss Mole is kind of taking on maybe a little bit of a mothering role to Barbara. And Barbara, when she is at her lowest point, like after being taunted by the Harbingers, 
running away from Sophia. She goes to Miss Mole's house and they're having this connection. And then she sees Miss Mole's infant daughter. And it like shatters this illusion that Miss Mole could be a mother figure for her. Um, for whatever. I think, it, you know, not that Miss Mole couldn't be that role for her, but Barbara, you know, needs an excuse to push her away. And finding out that Miss Mole has a family like ruins it for her, it seems like. Yeah. Because she reacts so violently, you know, or she reacts so negatively to this knowledge that Miss Mole has a family that she runs away. It's seeing her in a different context and seeing that while they may have their own hardships, like their family unit is healthy and tightly knit Mrs. Mole's. Right. That it makes Barbara feel even more alone. And and Mrs. Mole sees what's happening in Barbara's head. She can kind of read it on her face and in the things she's saying. And she tries to reach out and says, like, no, come inside. Like, you're welcome here. You know, you don't have to leave. I want you to come in. You're you're you don't have to be alone. Like, we can still have a connection, basically. But Barbara runs away. Oh, something that I thought was interesting was how what kind of what we were talking about earlier and Mrs. Mole, of course, she would understand that Barbara needs help working through this, not just like cutting it off cold turkey with this whole storyline she's working through. So uh, Mrs. Mole asks Barbara about giants and, and asks her to tell her about them and kind of tell her what's going on in her life and, and wants to understand this narrative that Barbara is constructing to help her work through it so that she can understand where Barbara is at mentally and emotionally. And so she has the right tactic. She wants to help Barbara process what is going on by buying into this narrative at least for a time, until she feels like Barbara could be ready to maybe face what's going on. But she, I think at one point, she kind of recognizes her own mistake. She pushes Barbara too early. And that's when Barbara slaps her in the face. Yeah, that's a pretty intense scene. Well, it's yeah. also when Miss Mole is mentioning Barbara's mother. Isn't that what causes She's it? She's asking her... To play a game where you say a word and then you respond with the first word that comes into your head. And she says baseball. Okay, so the first word would be mother, mm -hmm. which Barbara can't hear. Yeah, That's when her you start to get this idea that Barbara's ears start ringing. She stops being able to hear what Mrs. Mole is saying. And personally, I feel like that's a really interesting way to show what sensory overload feels like oh, as somebody who deals with that on a fairly regular basis it feels like once you hit sensory overload you stop being able to process any new information coming in and you start to tune it out so as a defense mechanism and it does kind of feel like that i, I thought it was a pretty accurate way of showing that when that kind of thing happens to me, I have to, like, remove myself from a situation so that I can kind of find my center again. Well, to some extent, it's a good thing that uh, Miss Mole kind of pushed Barbara away because she might not have been ready to fight that giant if she hadn't. Yeah. 
And then the whole town would have been destroyed. Exactly. Possibly the whole world. It's true. It's true. Titans are bad news. Yeah. They can't be allowed to just go around. Smashing people. Yeah. Creating tidal waves, destroying human villages. Yeah, that's bad (laughs) news. That's bad news. Speaking of giant monsters, I thought it was interesting how this film took a more medieval, fantastical hero and put it into a modern setting where it doesn't really fit. Ah, interesting. Yes. A lot of the fantasy films we watch have justice, right? Fighting for a cause as one of their main themes, right? Because that's just that in fantasy, it works really well. And it applies to this movie as well where the bad guy is a monster, some inhuman evil thing, right? Something that represents evil, hatred. Giants are pure hatred. And what is the solution to that? Kill it, right? (laughs) Destroy it with your righteous hammer, a sacred weapon, right? And control them with your magical spells. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You see, in a modern day... You're not supposed to solve most of your problems by killing things. <laughs> we we right? are told, yes. Yeah. Sacred weapons are more like evidence <laughs> these days. <laughs> You're not okay. supposed to use weapons, right? I think a lot of the themes of medieval fantasy don't apply to the modern day, which is no surprise to anyone, but that's something that this character is struggling with. I think what you're saying might come as a surprise to some people. I do think so as well. But I think it's great to see how that clashes with the rest of the people in Barbara's life, right? Because she doesn't even think she can talk to anyone about this, right? Yeah. She knows she's an outcast. She's hiding runes all around the school and using blood as components and gross components to make spells and stuff. And yet, in spite of her perspective that she is, for lack of a better word, better than everybody else, she still wants to protect her town. She she sees herself as having this role that nobody else is willing or able to fulfill, which is being the protector. Yeah. It's just in a modern setting where martial prowess is not celebrated and a warrior's mentality is often problematic yeah it's the way barbara can understand and approach a situation right i think that's something a lot of people struggle with a lot of people have like heroic urges right but not really an outlet for them and this is kind of her way of trying to use that which is the only thing she knows she's used to playing D &D, right that's a game where you're a hero and you use violence to solve problems typically She's basically Often. LARPing the whole movie. Yeah. But except she's got real giants to fight. Yeah. Another thing is, it doesn't always serve her well. As we mentioned, she's violent towards normal people. Yeah. yeah. She smacks her therapist and pushes her therapist down, punches Sophia in the face at one point. That was an accident, but she was lashing out at whoever was behind her. So, yeah. same difference. Her natural instinct is to attack. 
And she yeah. gets into a really a couple really brutal fights with Taylor where they both take turns coming out as the aggressor and the victor, I guess, for lack of a better word. Yeah, Taylor beats the hell out of her in one scene. Yeah. She's a returning rival or foe. But real quick, I just want to mention that um so it's natural for Barbara to feel this way as a young child like a tween age <laughs> yes and her mother who she's been close to and had a good relationship with is ill and possibly dying and it's it's totally understandable for her at that point to feel threatened in that scenario and what do people do when they feel threatened kill They're, giants <laughs> their fight flight or freeze response kicks in and her response is to fight. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> Just like the fight, freeze, or fucking response. What? <laughs> One of these will save me. <laughs> fight, freeze, or fuck. <laughs> or fight, flight, or fuck. Yes. It's when you have to make love to whatever is threatening you. Oh my god. I think some people do have that response and it's unexamined. <laughs> <laughs> I think movies especially encourage those responses or like Maybe, yeah. show those responses. Oh, they do. Yeah, I know. Mm -hmm. Yes. But um, I just think it's interesting that what would make a character a hero and a respectable beloved protagonist in another film is Barbara's sort of greatest detriment to herself in this film. Yeah. Because she's not in the right setting for this. The world isn't at a point where she actually has to fight anything to save the day. Except for the giants. Except for the giants. But she's making a threat that can be dealt with in place of one that cannot. Yes. Yeah, she can't fight her own fear physically her own fear and despair and her mother's illness. The, the giants kind of represent all these things. Yeah. yeah. She can't fight what's killing her mother. And she wants a enemy that she can beat. And when she's yeah. going against the Titan at the end, she says, like, you can't have my mother. I'm going to save her. That's the final foe that she's supposed to be able to defeat to save her mother. And she says so after she beats him. He's still there, and he says, you fought valiantly, young warrior, when the Titan's talking to her. And she says, um, I've beaten you. You must leave. And he says, no. And she's like, but I beat you. I saved my mother. It's so sad. It's such a heartbreaking yeah. moment. Well, he's, he says something really important at that point. He didn't come for her mother. Yeah. He came for Barbara. That's what he says right after she says that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's when she realizes that no matter what she does, no matter how many giants she kills, she still has to live for herself. The fact that he says he came for her, for Barbara, is very telling because this is after she's pushed the people who are closest to her away and she's denied help and she's kind of giving into her own darkness and despair and refusing help to get out of it. That's when the Titan says he's come for her to pull her under the ocean and to face death. She's going towards her own death by refusing to acknowledge her own problems. 
Yeah, she's just got to find proper work-life balance between, like, school and education and also killing giants and protecting the town. <laughs> and I, I think that by the end of the movie, we see that she's probably going to be able to, to, you know, balance those things a little bit better. I just found it very relatable, the sentiment that it's nice when your problems or the problems of the world have a face. Yeah. You know? It's you want to be able to pin it on something that you can just break and everything will be better. And that's the plot of the movie. In a way, it's kind of a healthy coping mechanism because once you do, once she does defeat the foe, the Titan, and she has to face her own death, that's when she realizes that there is something worth fighting for and she can have hope. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's when the Titan turns from being a symbol of hatred to being a symbol of hope. And it's really interesting. And that's when he starts talking to her about finding joy in living. And do not fear the end. Do not fear death. You must embrace it so that you can enjoy your life. Mm-hmm. Good advice from the Titan. Yeah. And once he says those things, that's when... Barbara, when she's basically drowning, decides to fight for her own life and starts to swim back towards the surface. Yeah, it seems like she might be letting herself just sink to the bottom of the sea. But yeah. It's it's as she can, you know, hear these words that she's able to kind of rouse herself and, and swim up, which is impressive, too, because that's a pretty bad storm. And he also tells her, you're stronger than you think you are. That's when yeah. she yes. starts to fight. That's when she realizes that she can face death, as in the death of her mother, that's, you know, sadly, inevitably going to happen. And so she had to experience the brink of death herself to understand what her mother was going through and to be able to cope with what was happening to her mother. And that's when she could finally face it. Yeah. It's a very touching, I mean, film and then like moment and then the entire story and narrative I found very touching. It's so engaging mentally with all these symbols that are going on with the giants. And like Jack said, with her as like the symbol of a medieval hero that doesn't fit in. And it just inspires all of these different hypotheses about what is happening. It's very engaging. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I was just going to say the giants don't exist, but they exist. I mean, they obviously <laughs> exist. I mean, she, she kills the giant in the end. And then he comes back, which... She doesn't kill him. He's like a spirit guide in a way. She, he, she needed a foe to fight, and he was filling that role for her. And when she was ready to face her own death and turn back toward life and hope, he was encouraging her and being her, her guide in that way, too. So I kind of thought it was interesting. To me, the Titan then became like like i said a, a, a spirit helper it was really interesting you could say that the real giants were the friends we made along the way it's true and you know we haven't even talked about the symbolism of her wearing the bunny ears the whole time and saying it's a totem to honor her spirit guide so what is the symbolism of her spirit guide being a, a rabbit that's a great question rabbits are often kind of depicted as fearful, small, and, and kind of unable to protect themselves. But they're also in folklore 
kind of trickster. Braggadocious, trickstery, courageous, and fast. Yeah. She is many of those things. <laughs> she is very braggadocious. She thinks she's just better than everyone. Mm-hmm. And I mean, as the only giant slayer in the entire movie, I'm not going to argue with her. They're also portrayed yeah. in folklore as being confident. She's incredibly confident. And she is deep into folklore and mythology from her interest in D&D, most likely. Yeah. And her mother read folktales to her when she was younger, we learn. Yeah, I think the folklorish rabbit is probably more than the pop culture rabbit. Yeah. What we're, we're seeing in Barbara's personification and character traits through this symbolism. Mm-hmm. It probably helps her embody those characteristics that she feels like she needs to fight this these foes. She also uses runes to help her create these warding rituals and to empower her uh, holy weapon. That's right. Yeah. Well, and, you know, her holy weapon, Kovaleski, is from the great line of mystical warhammers like Mjolnir. Yes. It is a weapon that you must be worthy to wield. And, you know, when she, when we first see her open her pack, you know, normally when she looks inside of her, her bag, it glows. But mm-hmm. when she finally reaches in to pull out Kovaleski to battle Taylor, it is not in its Warhammer form. It's just a small kind of jaw, like animal jaw on a stick. And I think it's because you can't use that weapon to fight humans. That's not worthy. She said she can only use it as part of her sacred mission. Right. Taylor, while she is a bully and, you know, going through problems, like she obviously doesn't deserve to be murdered with a sacred holy weapon, which obviously Kovaleski would kill any mortal who is struck by it. Yeah. So that's, you know, she when Barbara tries to use the weapon against a human, it's not going to manifest in its glorious form because that's not what it's for. It's for fighting giants. Yes. Mm-hmm. And Jack identified um, the rune that Barbara had painted on the back of her jean jacket. Thurasaz. Yeah, Thurasaz, yeah, the thorn. It's often used to represent Mjolnir, Thor's hammer, or uh, it's used to symbolize destructive nature or chaos because, uh, well, it's just sheer destruction. Thor's hammer is the doom bringer, right? The killer of giants. Yeah, specifically the killer of giants. It's how you use it, right? That's important because Mjolnir is just a force of destruction, right? But in Thor's hands and, and on his mission, it kills giants. And it protects the Asgardians and, you know, their homes. And, and it also protects the people who would be killed by the forces of nature that are the giants. Of course. Like they, the mere mortals, like Barbara's protecting the mere mortals. It's true. It's the sacred weapon that defeats the world serpent, right? Right. And Barbara also is using a hammer to smite giants and is on a holy quest. <laughs> so, of course, she has Thorsas. And her last name is Thorson. That's yeah. right. Her last name is Thorson. So she's probably descended from the god himself. She's a demigod. Yeah. She could very well be. Yeah. Much like Star-Lord, another character who's, uh, you know, the child of... Yeah. of uh, uh, terminally ill mother and 
you know, goes on an unexpected journey. Yes. And um, for those of you out there who think you can't be a demigod if you wear glasses, Barbara. Yeah, good yeah. point. Hey, guys, before we talk more about the movie, I think we should probably head to the bounty board. You wipe the sweat and blood from your face after a challenging day of giant hunting. As you look at your latest kill, you notice forms beginning to take shape in the giant flesh. Ancient runes from a bygone era. Yet somehow, the words make sense to you, and you begin to read them. They say, Bounties? As the winter pall lifts and the seasons begin to change, don't you think it's time to enjoy a good book? And what better way to experience a story than with our favorite format here at Swords and Satire, audio recordings. That's why our show is sponsored in part by Audible, the world's leading provider of audiobooks, spoken word entertainment, and now podcasts, including ours, by the way. And if you head to audible.com swords right now, you'll be able to start your free 30-day trial of Audible, and you'll receive an audiobook of your choice that you get to keep even if you can't see your membership. Although I can't imagine why you'd want to, because Audible has thousands of titles and programs. And did I mention podcasts like Swords and Satire? After your 30-day trial, it's just $14.95 a month, and you'll get a monthly credit for an audiobook that will be yours forever. I love Audible because it helps keep me entertained when I'm sharpening swords, cleaning the moat, or fighting off those pesky invading hordes. I have a library of hundreds of titles from my favorite authors, from J.R.R. Tolkien and Naomi Novik to George Carlin and Jen Kirkman, and I'm always listening to some of the great titles from Audible's extensive collection. And you can start building your own library today. If you don't know what book to start off your collection with, you could grab The Fifth Season by Hugo Award-winning author N.K. Jemisin. It's a complex and gripping dystopian sci-fi epic filled with interesting characters, deep world-building, and cataclysmic events. It's also the first book in Jemison's Broken Earth trilogy, so once you finish book one, you'll be able to start your next month of Audible with the sequel, The Obelisk Gate. So one more time, head to audible.com swords to start your trial, get your first audiobook credit, your free wellness guide, and to browse the thousands of titles in Audible's extensive library of audiobooks, spoken word programs, and oh yeah, podcasts like this one. And now back to the episode. So I think to kind of put a cap on our conversation, we should yes. talk about how Barbara changes after she's defeated the Titan and says that she she acknowledges that she's stronger than she thinks and that she's going to be able to cope with her mother's death and act after she's actually gone to visit her mother. When she's in school and they're talking about what they did over the break and Sophia pop, pop uh, chimes in yes and says finally 
she acknowledges that Barbara killed a titan and saved the whole town during break. And Barbara just smiles at her friend and, and they've, they've had a reconciliation and it's really nice. I was so <laughs> glad that Sophia finally acknowledged the truth that we knew all along. Yeah. She had to see it right in front of her to actually believe it. Yeah. And she Sophia was in the boat hiding from the Titan when Barbara faced him. Yeah. Yes. But she could look out of a little um, opening in the slats to see what was happening. So when Mrs. Mole comes to the class right after that scene and calls Barbara out to the hall and says, it's time, you get this idea like her mother's probably died and they're going to the funeral, which is the case. But they have a moment right then before the scene changes. And so in this moment, she starts crying, but she's staying kind of calm, but she's weeping. And she asks Mrs. Mole, are you afraid? And that is kind of heartbreaking. And Miss and uh, Zoe Saldana starts crying as well. And she says, no, I'm not afraid. And, and Barbara says, yes, you shouldn't be afraid. We're, we're strong. We can get through this together or something like that. She's beginning to see that other people have, you know, much to offer and, and connections to her and care about her. She's asking her you know, counselor if she's afraid, but it's really to acknowledge, like, she's actually kind of asking herself the same question. Yeah. yeah. And she acknowledges that she's been dreading this moment for so long, but now that it's finally here and she's been given the time to reconnect with her mother and, and come to terms with it, she knows that she is strong enough to get through it with the help of those around her. And she's able to form these meaningful connections with people again, which is what helps what helps her get through it. During the funeral, she and Sophia hold hands. And that, that really helps her in that moment. She's like lending her her willpower to get through it. Like, yeah. like you might if you're working on a spell together and you hold hands to kind of create a, a circle. Yes, a bond between people and between the spiritual energies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, it is a touching moment. It's a, it's a very heartfelt moment that I think is portrayed very nicely. As these ja final moments of the film. Yeah. And as Jack mentioned before, that's when Barbara is ready to give up her totems. Right. She, she along with the flowers on her mother's casket, she puts Kovaleski, the bag that she holds her sacred weapon in. And it's it's something her mother needs now as protection in a spiritual sense. Mm -hmm. Oh, that is that is heartfelt and sad. Mm hmm. But it also kind of signifies that she's ready to bury her hatred for giants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but she's ready to bury this part of herself, and she's ready to move on. Yes. Or start the healing process at any rate. It's not just going to all magically go away or anything. Right. Right, yeah. She's still going to struggle. She's still going to have to, you know, adapt and kind of learn and grow along with, you know, her family and the people around her. And this is actually the perfect time, I think, to touch on the theme that 
needs to make a comeback on our show, and that is class and the themes of class struggle that exist throughout this film. Because this movie is rife with them. Okay. And this is where you put in the class struggle theme song. So while the film ends on this bittersweet scene of Barbara coming to terms with her mother's passing and, you know, maybe beginning to build relationships, one giant that's going to be a little bit harder for her to slay is going to be the giant of, uh, is going to be the monstrous poverty that her family is experiencing, the systems that are not set up to help people in these types of situations. I mean, her sister, Karen, is, let's say, 21 years old. Yeah. She now has clearly a shitty job that doesn't care that her mother, you know, is terminally ill, the struggle she's going through, that that Karen is taking care of two siblings that are, you know, young teenagers, They've lost their mother. There's very little support. We have this character of Miss Mole or Miss Mole who truly seems to care and to want to support Barbara and to, like, you know, provide resources. But she's just one person. The amount of, you know, change that she's going to be able to have over the systems around them are is going to be pretty minuscule, sadly, most likely. Like, they're still going to be stuck with bills it's going to be really hard let's say barbara is 11 or 12 she's got at least six more years of school she's gonna to have to go through even if dave gets you know graduates a little bit sooner and say two years and then he's gonna to have to you know go right into working it's gonna be hard for him to get an education same with karen yeah you know that we see this um this cycle of poverty repeated I mean, I guess the house that they live in is pretty nice, but clearly whatever helped them, their family afford that, that money has dried up. Yeah, it's gone now. Yeah. And it's interesting then that the hero of uh, Barbara's story, Harry Kovaleski, is this poor baseball player from the early 20th century who was, like I said earlier, a coal miner, they say in the movie, somebody who is a blue-collar worker who was able to rise up above poverty and, like, really impress people and do something outstanding, like becoming a baseball star. But, I mean, that is very much a fantasy that a lot of people live in. As we're talking about fantasy movies, this is like the real life fantasy that, you know, you're going to just be discovered that some great thing is going to happen or you're going to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and everything's going to be just fine. But we kind of see that that's not really probably the case. They don't have a lot of prospects, unfortunately, because of the circumstances of their home life and the passing of their mother. These kids are going to be in trouble. It's going to be really hard for them to shake off the shackles of, of poverty. The stress of their situation and their 
uh, lack of resources is putting a strain on their relationships. Yeah. And just because, like, at the end of the movie, everything seems okay, like, that's one day up against the years of hardship and toil they're going to be stuck with. Yeah. So we see in one scene, Karen trying to have a private moment on the stairs, talking to her boss, asking for some personal days. And you can tell based on what Karen is saying that the boss is not being understanding about it and is basically coercing her to come into work so that she won't lose her job. So basically saying, you know, you need to put your job ahead of the cares of your family. And Barbara overhears this and sees her sister crying after she gets off the phone. And you can imagine how guilty she must feel. And we see Dave going through that guilt as well. And then the stress that Karen is going through, she complains to perhaps a friend on the phone in a different scene that her siblings won't grow up and help her out. And so there's this pressure for the younger siblings to grow up before they're ready Yeah, to, to help out around the house and with the, if not financially, with the chores and, and take more responsibility. And so the two younger siblings seem like they feel a little resentful of that as well. And while it's not unreasonable, obviously, for, uh, you know, early teenagers to clean up and to help out with stuff like that, the the incredible strain of the combined issue of a terminally ill parent living in poverty, like, it's also understandable why it would be hard for an 11-year-old to care enough. Yeah. Especially an 11-year-old who feels like they are taking on the literal weight of the world mm-hmm. in fighting giants. Definitely. I think it's interesting to see how the different sisters approach that specific situation. Mm-hmm. Because when they are both having a blowout, when they're arguing, finally, Barbara's like, why don't you just quit? If he's such a prick, why don't you just tell him to go fuck himself, right? And leave. And that's the very Barbara approach. Just like, oh, it's a problem. End the problem. Exactly. (laughs) Because that's Barbara's approach. She's like, there's a problem. Make it come to an abrupt conclusion, right? She's not afraid of confrontation or burning bridges. (laughs) Literally or figuratively. (laughs) And her sister is just like, yo, we all starve if I quit. Yeah. Yeah. Which is true. I mean, I'm sure that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I was saying earlier, how Barbara's approach is not applicable to the modern day where diplomacy is a much more appropriate response. Building bridges. Yeah. Yeah. Barbara's probably thinking, why not just go out and be a questing knight? That's basically what I do. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Just eat the toadstools that grow in the forest. (laughs) Or harvest them for giant bait. Yeah. But I did like the interesting juxtaposition between Barbara's situation and the story of Harry Kovaleski, which, again, is a fantastic, you know, it's a real-life fairy tale to some extent to be a quote-unquote nobody who rises up and you know defeats a seemingly insurmountable foe but the sad reality is that's not gonna be everybody yeah and some people are going to be stuck having to rely on the systems around them and social safety nets or the lack thereof 
to get by. And there is clearly no social safety net that is going to help the Thorsons right now. But it's people's belief in these myths that keeps them alive and keeps them relevant in people's lives. Like the great American myth of rising above your station, being able to pull yourself up from your bootstraps and become a millionaire if you just work hard enough. Which we pointed out in the past is a saying that originally meant something that is actually impossible to do and only a fool would think that it could be done. Yeah. And the reality of the situation is there are many systems in place to actually keep people down and keep them from rising up, both mm-hmm. figuratively and literally. <laughs> yeah. So while Barbara is a free thinker and a creative person, and, and obviously, I mean, I would hope that her talents will find some way to rise above poverty some way, somehow, the sad reality is that in most cases, that is just not how things work out. So... Yeah, that was kind of the sadder part of the ending for me. Yeah, but Mrs. Mole does start to get more involved in their lives. Which is a huge help. She is kind of taking on the role of a social worker in that way. And she's taking more of an active role in trying to help Barbara above and beyond the call of her job. Which is fantastic. But, you know, there is a limit to how far that can go, too, of course. So we see her giving emotional support, but she actively goes to Barbara's house to look for her and is giving emotional support to Karen and kind of has a grim look on her face when she when Karen admits that maybe sometimes she forgets to make sure Barbara gets to the school bus or she's too busy and she's already left for work. That was one of the most heartbreaking scenes for me was this older sister who's taking on the weight of the world in taking care of her family and is saying like, I'm doing my best, but you know, I, I actually have to get to work. So There's... I cannot make sure that my 11 year old sister gets to school. I just have to rely on her following the rules basically. Yeah. She initially, Karen initially has this knee jerk reaction when Mrs. Mole and Sophia are just gently asking her where Barbara is And she has this knee-jerk defensive reaction, like, I I made sure she got to the bus. I do that every day. I always make sure she's fed and has her school books and everything. And then as as the situation... She's literally doing her best. And as the situation is dawning on her and they're saying Barbara hasn't been going to school, then she sits down outside and says, well, most days I make sure she gets to the bus. Some days I'm already gone before she has to go. Yeah, and that's heartbreaking. And so she's starting to realize, like, the reality of the situation. Like, maybe I can't always be there for them. And that's when Mrs. Mole actually says, you're doing your best. Yeah. I mean, Mrs. Mole is the rare uh, example of, like, somebody in a position of some amount of, not authority, but, like, you know. She is. A representative of the school system who is empathetic and who will you know, express concern and, and do, but it's it's also putting a lot of strain on her as somebody who's, you know, got a lot of kids who are going to be relying on her for counseling and such. Yeah. And I mean, all these other people around Barbara saw what was happening to her and didn't take these steps, but Mrs. Molly did. Yeah. And sometimes there are people like that out there who show up in people's lives and, and have a positive impact on them. Yeah. And, and, 
that's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, it's not always the case, unfortunately. But I just got the sense from that scene later when the mother has died and she's hugging Barbara. I think she goes to the funeral, maybe. I Yes, Mrs. Mole is there with Sophia I, and, and the family. I get the sense that she's kind of taking on the role of a social worker a little bit. I kind of got the sense that like she might start to try to just help Barbara's family out, maybe at least give Karen advice or something. Sure. But I mean, you know, her resources will be limited. It's true. Because we don't have a social safety net to help people in these situations. I mean, the sad reality is that somebody in Barbara's situation would probably end up in the system. I know. When I actually expected that the movie to take that turn when we're in the scene we were talking about, when Mrs. Molay and Sophia show up to the house looking for Barbara and Karen doesn't know when she is, where she is and Karen admits that she cannot provide adequate care because she just doesn't have the capability. Like she said, Mrs. Molay admits like you're trying your best, but you know, in the end it's not enough because it's just like one person alone can't do this. Right. And somebody her age. And it's just too much. And she shouldn't be expected to take that on. And the look on Mrs. Mole's face, the grim look of like coming to reality moment, I thought the movie was going to take a turn where they were going to end up in the system, but they didn't go there. I was thinking in reality, that would have been the moment when that would have happened. No, oh, absolutely. Yeah, they would have they would have gone into yeah foster care system and, and that would probably well, <laughs> we're going to get really sad and depressing here. Needless to say, that is the more realistic version of this story. And that is a depressing reality. Yeah. But hey, fun fantasy movie. <laughs> At least Barbara gets to fight the giants. Yeah. The hammer is pretty fucking badass. When yeah. You, when she actually unsheathes it in its majestic, resplendent form, she booshes the fuck out of that titan. <laughs> yes, yeah, she does. The, the zap of lightning and you just the singed rock face. That was yeah. sick. Yeah. Yeah, that was cool, man. Yeah, yeah. The, the, it, it is pretty sick, that final fight. I got <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It is. But the so, character you know, growth, that was badass. What we're, <laughs> what we're saying is Barbara the badass and she's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. All right, guys. I mean, we have talked a lot about this movie. I think it's time to head into the smithy. Welcome to the Smithy, where we forge a rating for this film after we each share an epic moment or feature from the movie. Jack, do you want to tell us your epic moment or feature and then give us a rating between 1 and 10 Kovaleskis? Yay! Yes, I do. So my epic feature I'm going to be going with yeah. is the way the movie portrays the idea of the grass is always greener on the other side, right? Interesting. I don't know if it intentionally meant to cover that, but it comes across very well in this movie. I think a lot of people turn to fantasy the same way that Barbara turned to fantasy in this film. 
because it puts your problems in a more heroic light. We mentioned in the themes that the giants are like a personification of evil and her problems. And that destroying them violently, which is an unhealthy reaction in the modern day, is the appropriate reaction in this situation. Right. A lot of people would love that sort of thing. To be able to react in that simple, kind of natural way and be celebrated for it. They definitely show Barbara as a heroic figure. Someone you're supposed to cheer for, I think. Someone who you're like, yeah, hell yeah, Barbara. Way to go. You get that giant, right? And as the mental illness factor of this keeps developing, it's a little more like, uh... I'm still rooting for you, Barbara, but, like, not quite the same way I was, right? But when, at the end, the Titan tells her, like, oh, you gotta find happiness in life, right? You gotta find value in being alive where you can find it, right? Uh, That's where it sort of takes a turn, I think, because... That sort of fantasy escape that a lot of people look for actually made her life pretty bad. It was a coping mechanism, and it was typecast like this great thing. But even when she was living that badass, like, oh, she's a hero that no one understands, because of it, she had no friends. She was lashing out at her family. All she knew was kind of this paranoia and violence, right? Yeah. Even though she was meant to be this heroic, cool character, it wasn't a good life for her. (laughs) She wasn't happy with it, right? And at the end, when she starts dealing with things in a more healthy way, she forms these connections again. She's smiling. She shares with the class, like, what'd you do over the break? I relaxed, right? Yeah. And she says that that's one of the most triumphant scenes in the movie, where she's like, all I did during my break, I chilled. And And she hung out with her mom. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And you're just supposed to celebrate that. Like, that's the heroic accomplishment. Yeah. So I think it's it's funny how, yeah, the ideal, like, heroic adventure that people strive for was actually the bad part of her life (laughs) yeah and just living like a normal person was actually the reward that came of that which i think is funny and that's why i phrase it as the grass is greener because people want what she had but she wanted what everyone else has yeah right and so i thought that was a really cool theme just the way they show that and you know give you these moments of victory in the mundane i thought that was really cool yeah i love that that's a really amazing point and i didn't pick up on that yes the you know the reward was something we all live with a lot of the you know every day that's true yeah it's something we shouldn't take for granted yeah being cozy is one hell of a feeling yeah yeah but uh i'm uh, this movie was just so stimulating. I Like, we had so much to say about it. The visuals were fantastic. It's an adventure, and it tugs at my heartstrings. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, I'm gonna give this 
10 Kovaleskis. Nice. Nice. My, Big money. My gut was to give it lower, but I actually think this movie is really ingenious. I do too. I think some of the reasons I wanted to rate it lower were just because... It, it, th there were certain themes that, you know, were kind of bummers or hard to watch, right? Yeah. Things didn't play out the way I always wanted them to, but it all worked out in the end. And also, I don't think this movie is a work of art because it went exactly as I wanted it to, you know? It displayed a very complex, fun, and heartwarming narrative. And it. It was just masterfully put together. So I, I think I think it's kind of perfect. <laughs> nice. Uh, nice. 10 out of 10 Kovaleskis. Beautiful. Chelsea, how about you? Your epic moment or feature and your rating from 1 to 10 Kovaleskis. That's hard to uh, follow. You just um, say same. <laughs> just edit mine so it's after yours and you say it first <laughs> <laughs> no i'm gonna go with an epic feature as well nice but mine is gonna be about friendship oh and i love how barbara and sophia become friends through this mission this narrative that barbara is working through and how as we mentioned before, Sophia is willing to go along with it to get to know Barbara better and to make this connection. And the people that we choose to be friends with are those who kind of get us, you know? At least our good friends will. And even the if you, you might... friends you can hunt giants with. Yeah. And even if you might have a fight or something... Or like a rocky period, like they're the people that you come back to and they are drawn back to you. And ultimately, they're positive relationships, at least the people that really stick around, you know. And I love that they had that as a major feature of this movie. I We always talk about how we want to see more friendships explored in the films we watch. And I feel like this was a really great friendship they showed that it will persevere if it's good and true it perseveres through adversities and through hardships and when you feel a connection to somebody else that is a bond that can help you weather any storm haha -ha, see what i did there oh nice. like a storm giant yeah yeah that's that was good <laughs> holy and it can help you get to a healing process or grow. So I think they portrayed that really well in this film and how these connections are part of what helps you enjoy life. So that's that was meaningful to me. Nice. Mm -hmm. I'm still impressed by your weather any storm. <laughs> I'm just sitting here like, whoa, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to give it 10 out of 10 Kovaleskis as well. I actually do think um, this movie is a work of art. They pull a couple punches, sure, but they do cover difficult themes in a creative way, and they do show that 
you know, there are things to hope for and fight for in life. And I think that's a, you know, an important thing for a fantasy movie to portray. And um, I wouldn't fault it for that. And the intricate way that this film interweaves emotions and different emotional states with the narrative, I think is what makes it a work of art, in my opinion, and how that there are so many different layers of symbolism because of that. It's just really fascinating. So I really enjoyed those aspects of the film. 10 out of 10. Nice. An epic rating. How about you, Jamie? Yes, tell us, Jamie. Well, you know, I'm glad you asked. My epic moment is actually going to be the opening of the movie. Oh. Where we see Barbara for the first time, and she's out in the woods, and she's preparing her giant bait, and she's checking her traps, and she's doing science. She is testing different formulae for baiting giants. So we see her, yeah, we see her scraping the uh, fungus off the top of a toadstool, and then she's mixing stuff in a bottle. She's got a gummy bear. So she like mixes in the gummy bear, and she makes this gooey paste, and she starts sprinkling it. And then we see, as she walks away, a giant's hand come and like wipe some of it off and like later on a few minutes later she's we see she's got a notebook and she's got these different drawings of potions she's made and then what's in each of them and it really just grabbed me as a modern fantasy right then and there i was like i am in from from the go like it was so cool and i love that and if it, that was in like a D movie or whatever like a, like a medieval fantasy movie it would feel perfect like a ranger or an alchemist like doing these experiments yeah i was thinking she's like an alchemist yeah it's so awesome so that is definitely my epic moment now guys i have to admit something here Mm -hmm. i've i've been a little facetious this whole time oh yeah because i've been like pretending like i don't know that you guys would think that maybe the fantasy elements of this movie aren't real and they're part of Barbara's imagination. And I could see, I, I, you know, I could actually see how you might think that. But if that were the case, we wouldn't be watching this movie for swords and satire, right? Because we watch fantasy movies. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I have been saying that giants exist. That's fair. Okay, you're or right. time and time again. That's okay. Okay, that's fair. Like, that's they fair. don't exist, but they exist. Exactly. You know? Um, no, so, um, you know, obviously this movie exists in a similar vein of movies like Pan's Labyrinth, a movie mm. that I love that is a fantasy film where we as an audience can be led to question whether or not the fantastical elements are real or not. And I think that that's a great tool in fantasy storytelling of mm-hmm. this type, especially when you're dealing with the perspective of a child, a young teenager. I mean, I basically jokingly said, like, after we watched this movie, if you had told me that we were watching an American remake of Pan's Labyrinth, I probably would not be interested. But <laughs> that's kind of like, this is a very similar story in a lot of ways. And But they executed it really well. They executed it really well. The metaphors, I think, work really well. It seems like you guys agree. Um And, you know, Guillermo del Toro talked about Pan's Labyrinth as a movie that you can, as an audience, interpret your way 
whether or not the fantastical elements are real. But he said of his movie that he likes to think that the fantastical elements are real. And that's where I stand with this movie. Yeah. I like Me to too. think Me too. that the giants are real and, and that Barbara just, you know, sees things that other people don't see. And she learns and she grows and she faces a foe. And it can be a metaphor and it can also be real. It can also be real. Yeah. So, I mean, I couldn't possibly give this movie any less than a 10 if you guys are giving it a 10 out of 10 Kovaleskis. It <laughs> has stirred my imagination. It has invigorated me. It's made me think and, you know, think critically and, and really engage with the material. And, you know, yeah, there maybe some of the metaphors might you know, miss on a few points, like, you know, how Barbara deals with this and everything. But at the end of the day, it is a story about her feelings and her experiences and filtered through this lens of a child's perspective. And I think they capture it really, really well. And I really enjoyed it. And if I'm being totally honest, this is the type of movie I really love to cover on the show with you guys. Because yeah. it's something that I think people should watch. This is a film that I think people should appreciate. And that it should be better known than it is. Yeah. I, I, the fact that I had only kind of known about it, I think, is a shame. I know. I had s sort of remembered hearing about it once you pointed it out to me. But I didn't know much about it. Yeah. It wasn't really on my radar. And I think that's too bad. So, you know, I, I hope if nothing else... That through our coverage of movies like this, we're able to elevate these in the minds of our listeners and maybe get people to go out and watch the movies because... And engage in their own conversations about it. Yeah, because I, I really liked it and it, it meant a lot to me. And there you go. 10 out of 10 Kovaleskis. Perfect! It's, it's a perfect movie perfect. For, for all of its imperfections. Yeah. Yes. Well, I think that pretty much covers everything that we're going to talk about, guys. Does anybody want to add anything else before we wrap up here? Just that you can join us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you want to join in on the conversation about these movies, see what we're going to be watching next, and get to see some awesome memes. And that's at Swords and Satire on Twitter and Instagram and the Swords and Satire Facebook group on Facebook. It's true. And if your thirst for us has not been slaked and you need more and more Swords and Satire experience. Yes, always more. <laughs> why not go check us out on Patreon where we post additional episodes, some more of our creative projects such as our rewriting history from the past has been moved over to Patreon and you'll see occasional postings of art and polls where you can vote on what movies we're going to be watching for upcoming episodes. And if you don't have the means to support us financially on Patreon, you can support us emotionally <laughs> by talking about the show to your friends and maybe posting about us on social media. Maybe send us uh, an email and let us know what you think about the show. So we can maybe answer some of your questions on the air by if you email us at swordsandsatire at gmail.com and maybe give us a review on any of your podcast platforms that support reviews to help other people find out about us. Yeah, the ratings really help us ha get an idea of 
how people feel about us, let other people know, and help our numbers, too. So we'd really appreciate it if you've got the time. And we really appreciate all of you out there who are listening to us and letting other people know about our show and any way that you're able to support us. We 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 love you guys. Yeah, we really do love you guys. Yeah, it do be that way. We do. <laughs> but until next time, Hail Crom! I've got the beast in my sights. <laughs>